Living in New York City is a wonderful thing, but New Yorkers, it is said, like to complain. My gripes are the subway. It takes too long. It, sometimes it doesn't come, then it gets delays. My biggest gripe in New York is too much honking. My biggest complaint probably is the trucks and the fire trucks, everyone who keeps the engines running late at night outside your bedroom windows. These are just some of the things New Yorkers gripe about. Good morning. I'm George Poldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, complaints in the city. Glad you're with us. If you live in New York City, it's more than likely you've called the oft-dialed 311 to complain about whatever is fraying your nerves. The folks there are trained to listen and to do what they can to help. They strive for customer satisfaction, but are fully aware they'll never make everyone happy. I went down to 311's call center in Lower Manhattan and got a first-hand look at their operation. Lots of people in cubicles sitting in front of computers talking on the phone. I got to know two call service representatives, Fern and Lisa. Both have a few years of experience under their belts. In fact, Fern is about to mark an anniversary. May 8th will make four years. Four years behind the telephone, huh? Yes, behind the telephone. Four years, almost. How about you? It will be five years, October 24th of this year. What's the nice thing about working here at 311? Well, I have to tell you, the first time uh, I was on the floor, I was a little overwhelmed. Uh, It is so great to uh, all the uh, different types of phone calls that we're getting. Uh, And to be able to feel that we're helping New Yorkers get through their day is the thing that keeps me motivated. So I feel a little bit, and I say that all the time, that we're like the men in black. We're the behind the scenes that no one knows about every day, uh, depending on what may happen. Uh, We're here to try to assist you just to simply get through your day. I agree with Lisa, but to add on, I also believe it's internal as well. We have a lot of support. We have our peers. We have management. We have upper management. So it's it's an internal, um, how can I say it? It's just the support that we have. Like, if you need assistance with anything, there's always someone there to help you, no matter what it is. Are you both native New Yorkers, Lisa? Yes, I am. And where are you from? I've lived in Brooklyn all my life. The last year I've moved to Queens, so it's a new experience finding out different things in Queens. So I have to get used to it. How about you, Fern? I am as well. I was actually born in Harlem, and I've lived in Brooklyn for majority of my life, yes. Do you think that makes it easier, the fact that you're both native New Yorkers, makes it easier to do what you do? Because you can relate to these people on the other end of the phone. 100%, yes. I agree as well. It does make it a lot easier because you understand the complaint. So it's not as if they're telling you something and then you're just, okay, you know, and then you say, okay, it is. But majority of the time you can relate. So what's a typical day like for you, Lisa? Okay, well, when I get up in the morning, what I've learned now after uh, several years, it's depending on the weather for me. (laughs) Um, If it's raining, um, if it's snowing, I know, you know, people are going to be calling if there's water, water problem issues or uh, sanitation issues for garbage and uh, just basic things going on, parking tickets. There are so many, you know, it's hard to mention just one specific thing in one day, uh, how many phone calls are received. So you're trying to gauge what your day will be like based on the weather and other things. Right. You can get a read of it. things that may be happening. I, I think the, the cool thing about it is, is the management trying to prepare what's happening at any moment, what may happen within the five boroughs. 
Uh, and then we're getting uh, information on our screen for people calling in if there's, you know, many delays that, that may be happening on the train or an accident that may have happened in the, in the city. Something going on, they're calling us, and, and they want to know, you know, what's happening. So the response time that we're, we're getting this, that we're able to get this information from our management, I think is really cool to be able to do that. What are some of the more common complaints that you get here at 311? Uh, there's uh, no heat or hot water, landlord maintenance issues, people wanting to know how to dispute a parking ticket or how to pay the parking ticket. My favorite calls are people that are calling for cycling maps. You know, the other issue, not the complaint, uh, where to find a zoo, play areas, recreation areas. The, the other aspect of it, there's, there's just so much information that I, I wasn't aware of. If, if I leave here with anything, it would be knowledge uh, of different uh, services that we have to offer to the city. Fern, how about you? What kinds of complaints do you typically get? Typically, for me, it would be same thing, landlord maintenance complaints, um, Department of Sanitation, miscollection, um, what else, Department of Buildings complaints, just different areas. Then there's the noise complaints. You have the, depending on what time you're, you're working here, you have the, um, the lost items in the Tax and Limousine Commission. It's a lot of different things. Like I said, it's, it varies. Now, you two need to know exactly where to direct these complaints because a noise complaint of one kind may go to the Department of Environmental Protection. A noise complaint of another kind could go to the police department, right? Right. right. Well, we have different training uh, for different legacies that would give us not only uh, information, but we're actually able to take the complaint and submit it to the appropriate agency. So I uh, take complaints for the Department of Environmental Protection, Sanitation, but we've had that training. And it does get frustrating at times. It, it definitely can be, especially if I feel I can't assist someone or someone is already um, upset before the call. But the basic thing is to really try and, and as we're trained to, you know, take control of the call and see how can we really help you. I'd like to add to that as far as with the knowing where the complaints go, it's a matter of listening. We have to listen because one thing that they may say will turn the whole conversation around. And that's how we determine if it will go to the Department of Environmental Protection or if it goes to the New York City Police Department. Give me an example, Fern. Um, a lot of times people just call up and say, I would like to make a noise complaint. So then, okay, we are automatically know noise complaint. We know that's what you want to do. So we, as us, we have to play, I can say, we can say, we have to play of being a little nosy. You have to get into details. What kind of complaint? Is this noise from a neighbor? Is it noise from a machine? Is it noise from, you know, and if then, then they'll say it's noise from, it's noise from a machine. Then you can find out what kind of machine. It's noise from an air conditioner. We already know it's a machine. It goes to the Department of Environmental Protection. And then that does attribute to the training. So it is listening and asking questions. I would imagine that you are seeing New Yorkers at their worst. They're angry. They just got a flat tire from a pothole. Mm -hmm. They were woken up by the noisy neighbors. How do you deal with that when people are frustrated and I would think you can tell me sometimes yelling? There are difficult situations. Uh, the one thing that we do have here is a great support team. While being on the phone, of course, uh, personally, I, I feel to try and do my best to assist you. You're not going to make everybody happy, but I can do my best to do that. Uh, I try and explain more of what the problem is. I try and understand that they're frustrated. Like a, a friend, a good friend or a family member, you want to do the best. Right. And when you do see them at their worst, the key is to not take it personal. I just let them vent because a, a lot of people, they just want to vent. Some people call just to vent, and after that, they say, thank you for listening to me, and then they hang up. 
And you're, you didn't even do anything. You didn't put a complaint in. You didn't transfer them anywhere. They just want to get it off their chest, and then that's it. So you just have to just smile and don't take it personal, and then your day will be just fine. What's the strangest complaint that you've ever heard? One really great call that I had was one, and it, it wasn't even as a complaint. A woman, well, it started off as a complaint. It was a, a Spanish call, and uh, we have language line services. And uh, the woman, when I picked up the phone, was screaming. So, I, you know, I was very upset. I was waiting for a language line uh, to come on. They came on, and the woman was very upset over her stove not working. So I said, okay, and I went to the service that would assist her in the middle of the phone call and taking the complaint. She said, I'm going to jump off the roof. So definitely I told language line to stay on the line. I brought on 911. And uh, she was still screaming. And now I'm not understanding. I'm, I'm uh, this is... Uh, teamwork together that's why I remember this call so language line is explaining to me what she's saying I'm trying to give her comfort we bring 911 on the phone now it's it's all of us speaking and we're trying to calm her down and um, I was told to stay on the line until the police was there so we're we're all trying to talk it's myself uh, language line uh, and the 911 operator and we try and calm her down and her phone battery is running out so she goes in, and she was in the living room. She goes into the kitchen, and she picks up her other phone, and in the kitchen is her stove, which reminded her of the issue why she called. And then the screaming and everything started. But thank goodness it was about 40 minutes, I would say, 40 to 45 minutes, and we were on the line until the police were there. So that was, was kind of a cool call. It was, it was frustrating because I didn't understand Spanish, and I was waiting for language line to you know, give me the information. But a, a teamwork working together to be able to assist the, the customer. But they, they were out there. This is mentioned to me that someone wanted to make a complaint about a noise complaint, but it was noise from her refrigerator. Noise from her refrigerator. Yes. And she was adamant about making the noise complaint. Well, I think we need to do a follow-up story here in New York City. Is What's up with the appliances between the stoves and the refrigerators? I don't know. <laughs> Fern, Lisa, thank you both so much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. More than anything else, New Yorkers cite noise as the most annoying facet of living in the Big Apple. It can come in many forms and from many places, shrieking subways, roaring boilers, thudding pile drivers, loud garbage trucks, you name it, the city's got it. And besides being annoying, research shows loud noises can actually make us sick, physically and psychologically. That's why people worldwide are forging alliances to combat egregious sounds. Enter psychologist and noise expert Dr. Arlene Bronzaft. Arlene Bronzaft, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you for inviting me. Arlene, noise is the number one complaint to New York City's 311 hotline. Can you think of a time when it wasn't the number one complaint in New York City? Very difficult for me to remember a time when it wasn't because I do know that just before they wrote the first version of the noise code about 40 years ago, that was in response to complaints from citizens about noise being a problem. So I think it's accelerated because... Today we have amplified music. We didn't have it 30, 40 years ago. Uh, We also went through a time when we had boom boxes, so that, at least today, is less than then. But I think people using their cell phones and talking in restaurants, that wasn't then. So I think it's increased, 
But I think we've had noise around for a long time, or we wouldn't have had the, the code uh, passed uh, in 72 if it hadn't been. Now, the code was updated not too long ago, right? Two and right? a half years ago. Now, that targeted Mr. Softy Trucks, correct? That wasn't the primary uh, reason for rewriting the code. The news media would make you think otherwise. The news media gave it top coverage, but they just asked the Mr. Softy Truck to stop playing the music when they parked the uh, ice cream trucks. But the emphasis on the code was to try to correct situations which created all sorts of problems, primarily in the construction area. There, the code, I think, probably has done the best job. Now, what changed there as far as construction noise? One of the things the code does do is it actually recommends quieter tools to be used. The city person involved with writing the code has helped design uh, a tool that would be quieter. That's important, that when you look at the code, they do tell you not only which hours you are permitted to do construction, but recommends how you can quiet things down. And if you check with the people in the city who live near construction sites, you will find as a result of the new code and the restrictions on construction, you will find that things have improved. Do you get a sense, Arlene, that the economic downturn has minimized construction noise complaints in the city because fewer projects were getting done or yeah. were put on if, hold? If you're going to have less projects, of course that's going to have an impact. But there's another thing. You ask the question, how has the recession impacted? When people now are out of work, they probably are home looking for a job, and that means more people are staying home and probably are more affected by daytime noises than they would have been in the past. It's true that more people are working out of home anyhow with the computer coming into play. So the recession may have slowed down the noises from construction, but people living in their homes may be more cognizant of the sounds coming from their neighbors than they would have been before the recession. What's the most egregious noise complaint that's come across your desk? Oh, you want me to give you some funny ones? Oh, yeah. Some interesting ones? Mm -hmm. All right. Sex. How about sex noise? I'm blushing now, but go ahead. You're blushing now. (laughs) Don't, Don't blush. Actually, someone came to me and said, look, my bedroom is right next to the bedroom of my neighbor. Their bed is right up against the wall. So every time they have sex, it's banging against the wall. How do I handle that? Well, I handled it for the person. I happen to have known the housekeeper, and I just very gently said, you know, I think the bed is banging on the wall, so that's making noise in the next apartment. Do you think we could just move the bed two inches away from the wall? The person said, oh, that sounds reasonable. I, don't, I, I said, you could end up tearing your wallpapers. Notice how gently I said that? Mm-hmm. We moved the bed, and that ended the problem. What was the most frivolous noise complaint that you've ever heard of? All right. I did get someone who called me who said he had moved about 30 times because of noise. 30 is a large number. Mm-hmm. Now, I am a psychologist. But I I treated that one more as a psychological problem than as a noise-related issue. To that one, I said I thought he really should talk to a therapist because I think he was just going a little overboard. And apparently that worked because he did go to a therapist. That's good because someone could take offense to that, but apparently he did heed your advice. Look, I'm a psychologist. 
I felt 30 apartments was a little too much. I had someone else also say that I, uh, the person in the cubicle next to me, I'm constantly hearing him, but then when I come home, I keep thinking of hearing him. I think that I can discern a reasonable complaint from one that's being more sensitive because of a larger problem. Is 311 the best place for someone to go with a noise complaint, or should they go to you? No, definitely not go to me. They should go to their city council people. The city council passed the revised noise code. They must see to it that it gets enforced. Go to your city council people. Go to your local community boards. Arlene Bronzeft, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Dr. Arlene Bronzeft is a member of Grow NYC and professor emeritus at Lehman College, CUNY. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. On this morning's show, complaints in the city. Some city nuisances have barely changed over the years. Loud music, construction blasting, noisy neighbors, dirty sidewalks, unhelpful public servants. That's certainly what artist Matthew Bauckham found after unearthing correspondence from the city's municipal archives. Bauckham dug through more than 30,000 boxes of official correspondence to the mayor, dating back to the 1700s. His exploration has resulted in a fascinating book called The New York City Museum of Complaint. We're happy to welcome to Cityscape this morning the editor and creator of the New York City Museum of Complaint, Matthew Bauckham. Matthew, thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Now, this, of course, is not an actual museum. It's a collection of letters written to the mayor of New York City from 1751 to 1969. Why did you decide, though, to call it the museum? The project was inspired by my research in the municipal archives of the city of New York, and one of the ways I approach making artistic projects of this nature is to kind of try to find an umbrella under which material can be shared with people, basically. And in this particular case, when I discovered this trove of correspondence, for whatever reason, this idea of a museum, of something as abstract and as something as specific as complaint, seemed to be an interesting way to put things together and also allow for the incredibly amount of you know, divergent voices that are actually in, in the piece in the end. So the museum became this umbrella. And I'm fascinated by the structure of the museum in an artistic sense, how we as a culture remember and carry things forward. So the idea of a museum of complaint kind of came naturally. I'm fascinated to know what it was like to go through the municipal archives. First of all, where did you go to do that? And was it very dusty? There is a, a high level of professionalism at the Municipal Archives of the City of New York, I have to say. Um, of course, you can imagine the volume of material. Um, the particular archive that I was working with was on Chambers Street. It's downtown by the Tweed Courthouse. And uh, I had originally gone there to do research on a collection of tax photos that they have there, uh, which is quite fascinating in its own right. And eventually I found these other collections kind of finally resting on this collection of letters. And that collection of correspondence written to the mayor of the city of New York, and now believe me, they're not all complaints, and they simply exist as received correspondence, it rests in a kind of a large stone chamber in the basement of this building. And this building was purpose-built originally to be a Department of Records, has since become a, a, a municipal courthouse in different ways. And it's simply filled from top to bottom, row upon row upon row of gray document boxes, each one holding 
a different period of correspondence to the mayor of the city of New York. So my experience was simply to go in the space and choose certain boxes, go to another research space, and then open them and go through them piece by piece by piece. How many hours at a time would you do that? I could only ever manage eight. And believe me, sometime after lunch, it was a little bit more difficult than other times. But usually eight hours at a time. And in some total, I I did about a month of research that way for this project. Your book includes images of these letters. They seem like they're in pretty good shape, which amazes me. Did the city do anything to keep them intact? They simply are kept in a dust, relatively dust-free environment, and they're kept in archival boxes. And the paper itself is that long-lasting in a lot of cases. And they are in great shape, I mean, considering their age. There is something about how, how these letters have lasted that is also this project touches on or is interested in, how these kind of lost voices from the past manage to survive because of the medium that they're transported on, basically, ink on paper. And then, and how they also operate as images. And and that's very much the case in this, in this project is that this is a collection of images. It not only contains kind of the pure or raw literary content of the letter itself, but also the feeling of the paper, the ephemera, the stamps, the handwriting, all of these kind of really physical, personal touches. So a lot of the information is actually not the words per se, but how the words appear and how they feel in your hand. These letters, no question, allow you to relive moments in New York City. You take us back to the mid-18th century. What surprised you most about those letters, in particular from the 1750s? I think the thing that I found most striking... um, I mean, of course, they uh, they appear to a contemporary reader quite foreign, just basically in a linguistic sense. The formality of the language, and it's it's closer really to Old English. And these letters, these original letters in the collection are actually not written to the mayor of the city of New York. They're written to the, the head of the common council. It was part of the crown at that point. So there's a kind of very courtly manner to them. But over time, I realized that this was a reflection of the fact that the individual, as we know it and consider it at this point, did not even exist. And the United States did not even exist yet at this point. So the nature of address and the kind of um, organization of address, I mean, groups of landed gentry basically would you know, gather together and form a petition. And this was more or less all that a complaint could be at that time. You had to be in a certain position. You had to go through these extremely formal maneuvers in order to reach the mayor and then to be registered and then ostensibly to be heard and responded to. You do have to love the language used in the early letters to the mayor of New York City. In a letter dated June 5, 1866, a J.W. Geary is complaining about illegal dumping in lower Manhattan. And this person ends the letter with these words, hoping this evil will be remedied. Absolutely. There's a language like that throughout, a kind of almost, not necessarily biblical. It, it's a different world of literature and words. And, and that's evolved. You know, we have all kinds of idiosyncrasies of our own at this time. But from a remove, these kind of moments trapped in time on paper really deliver some of the, uh, the special quality of that archaic language. Yeah, I think there was a lot of, I pray of you, Mayor, do something about this. Yeah, humble is a word that comes up, and servant, and you know, there's a lot of the structure you would kind of imagine, but what's interesting about all of the documents is that they, um, they do bring you back to the context, and that language that they are of a very particular moment, and they are not necessarily representative of how everyone spoke, but they're about this moment, this problem, this energy that ultimately infuses a lot of them. 
Today, noise is the number one complaint in New York City, but it's been a big complaint for years and years and years. We see that in these letters. Absolutely. Noise is perhaps the most resounding complaint about New York City. And in fact, from from the citizens of New York to their mayor, noise is a constant, constant issue. The project itself was actually inspired by an image that I made, a photograph that I made in the municipal archives when I first discovered this collection of letters. And it was simply of a series of boxes that were labeled noise, 1943 to 44, 1944 to 45. And I was so taken by the idea that these, these archival boxes actually contained, I mean, I knew they contained letters, but the idea that they had some aspect of noise from the 1940s within them was what drew me into thinking about, you know, framing the entire thing. And these letters were specifically sent to Mayor LaGuardia, who was the first of the mayors to kind of really welcome complaint and as a kind of a mechanism within the Great Depression to kind of say to the citizens, well, we, I know you've got problems. Tell me about them. I'll have these weekly radio shows and we'll really be in dialogue about life in the city. And it was the beginning of the big government of New York City. And he specifically created, you know, an or- the noise, some noise ordinances of his own, which are contested within the book, actually. His banning of the organ grinders is one of the kind of big sentimental issues that I came across and you know, kind of heartbreaking in a lot of ways. But the first ones I actually encountered were about German bands in the 1870s, another kind of interesting noise issue. But then automobiles, car horns. I mean, it, it, it covers the gamut, as we would say, about noise issues in New York City because, of course, we're all sensitive to it. I mean, the project is largely based on this idea, too, that this is um, an example of what a lot of people living very close together go through. This question was asked of you by a reader in a New York Times article not too long ago, but I'll ask it again. New York City is, of course, a city of immigrants. Did the nature of complaints change as different groups came to New York City? There there are the distinct flavors that are the classic kind of issues in New York, whether they be uh, European Jewish immigrants, whether it be Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants. These these kind of telltale signs emerge, though I'm not – I think the number one issue is the – the kind of emergence of the typewriter and of public education. And these are the two things that kind of go together to create a populace that feels that they can make an address to the mayor. Some of the interesting letters that start turning up around the turn of the 19th and the 20th century are are of that nature, written by young people complaining about policemen stealing baseballs or volunteering to help out with section gangs in Brooklyn. And these are written by people who are obviously being educated in a public school setting. And that's, you know, from my knowledge of New York City history, this is the time when that's really kind of becoming manifest. So it's a combination of immigration and then also education and telecommunications as it, as it w- was at the time. That letter about the stolen baseball was one of my favorites in your collection, no question about that. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty remarkable letter. I think this guy said he was in his 20s, and he's, he's playing conscientiously. He's playing within the rules. He's playing Sunday morning in the Lower East Side in a park, and even within that, the ball does leave the field occasionally. And in this case, it's taken away by a, a passing police detective who apparently then recycles it for the police baseball team. But the specificity of his complaint is what's most impressive. He wants exactly $1.25 in compensation for the baseball from the mayor. And it's just a very, it's a kind of a no-nonsense approach to government. Like, 
you know, here's here 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 was the problem. Here is the specific answer. Thank you. Please look into this. Yeah, I was going to say we can only wonder whether this young man ever got that money for his baseball. It's against the odds that that actually happened. I mean, one, one never knows, though. Perhaps you know they, they, that's part of the magic of the letters too. Is that there is there. There are, they're not necessarily shots in the dark or shouts in the wilderness, but we do not know the response to them. I think one of the saddest letters in the collection was written in November 1911 by a woman who goes by Mrs. Feraldo. Her husband was fired from his job as a street cleaner, and she made a very, very passionate plea. She was really begging the mayor to bring her husband back to work. Many of the letters, of course, many of the correspondence with the mayor over the course of time are inquiries about employment. This is someone who is writing to the mayor as if he's the last resort, that this problem has gone on for months. He didn't know he crossed the line during the strike. He can't be reinstated because of these things. This is the end of the line for us. We're going to lose everything. Dear Mayor, please can't you somehow intervene for this, you know, this one member of your extensive civic apparatus. But, but even then, this idea, there's an intimacy to all of the letters that is, in this case, very particular because it seems like a real plea. This is a person who is like reaching out to the, the, the last person she can imagine can help, and it's a letter to the mayor. Do you have hopes to get back into the archives and sift through more letters for a part two? of your museum of complaint. We'll see what happens in the future. Matthew Bauckham, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. We're also now on Facebook and Twitter. Look us up and become a fan and a follower. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Skylar Srivastava and Morlene Chin. Have a great weekend. If you